Okay, guys, happy Thursday. Welcome to Unapologetic Live. You might be looking at me and wondering, Amala, why do you look like that? You're dressed in red. You got red lipstick on. There's devil horns. There's a tail. Did I spend uh, an excess of 30 minutes crafting this today? Yes. Am I embarrassed by it? A little bit. Can you judge me for it? Absolutely. And <laughs> I will take it. The reason I am dressed in this little outfit is because we are doing a segment or a show today called Devil's Advocate. So often, what I feel like we're lacking is true discussion when it comes to the issues that we talk about. And I want to hear the leftist view of things, the centrist view of things, the conservative view of things. And it's hard to get people who want to have those civil discussions, who want to debate things, especially live. So I came up with a segment called Devil's Advocate where because of my old leftist experience, I know the talking points, I know what people are advocating for, I know the arguments that they make, so I will be here to represent them. Hence the horns and the tail. I'm not calling leftists the devil. Let's make that very clear. I'm simply playing devil's advocate. Now today, we have a very special guest to represent the conservative side of things. We are going to be talking police, so the back the blue and pro-police side of things. We have Brandon Tatum, former police officer. He is the host of the Tatum Report, and he also wrote a book about his experience in his life called Beaten Black in Blue. Brandon Tatum, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. Now, before we get into your background in policing and sort of your expertise in this subject matter, do you think there's any sort of common ground when it comes to the policing debate between the left and the right? Are there things that we can't agree on there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we can agree on. I think there's a lot of things that we do agree on. I think that the nuance of the conversation is spun because of political um, expediency for certain people. But I think that every single mm. person that we can talk to that, that you know, that are, that's will be considered normal. They want the same things out of police as people who are pro advocates for police. Right. I agree. I think we want crime to be taken care of in our communities. I think by and large, conservatives and leftists are against real acts of police brutality. I think where we start to disagree is deciding whether or not something is police brutality or a rightful action. Now, before I start actually playing the leftist, can you talk a little bit about your background and, and how you got to talking about these issues? Yeah, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, for people that, that uh, live in Texas, they know about Fort Worth and Dallas, the rivalry there. But I live in Fort Worth, Texas, went to Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, was an uh, excellent football player. I was an All-American football player, top player in the nation, went to college, played football in college, uh, and, and that's when it really changed my life. You know, be, Growing up in the environment that I grew up in, going to college kind of changed my perspective. I got saved in 2008, uh, meaning that mm -hmm. I gave my life to Christ and I, began, I became a Christian, and that really set me on a, a trajectory of positivity as well. And once you know, I was in the 2010 NFL draft, uh, I didn't get drafted, which was very disappointing. Uh, but then I needed an opportunity. I needed a job. And I said, you know, I'm going to apply for everything that I can because as a responsible man, and I was a father at the time, I mean, you know, I was a new father at the time. I said, I got to work somewhere. I can't just be chasing a dream with no end. Um, so I, you know, did a ride along on the police department once they called me back for the interview. And it blew my mind. I was completely inspired by Officer Sean Payne, who did the ride along or conducted the ride along, the guy I rode with. Um, and it made me want to be a police officer. I said, look, this is a, this guy's a hero and I want to be a hero like Sean Payne. I want to, you know, help my community, save my community, be the change I want to see in the community. And so I became a police officer and, you know, I mm -hmm. left in 2017, not for anything bad, but because God just took me in a different direction to be able to speak more on the issue more so than I could 
um, when I was a police officer. But I've been an advocate ever since I did that ride along. I, I was blown away at the true experience of being a law enforcement officer versus what uh, people may think. Right. Oh, and what, what caused you to, to leave police and do what you're doing now? Yeah, so I made videos uh, online, you know, I said videos online, they came out weird, but I made some uh, <laughs> political commentary online and uh, they just went viral. You know, I, I, I began to be mm. more political when I was a police officer because, you know, I saw the money coming out my check. I saw them taxes and I said, Lord, I need to figure out how do I vote for stuff to make these taxes go down? And that started me on my journey to figure out what, where did I really stand politically? Because growing up, being black, I'm a Democrat. It, it was no such thing as Republicans. It, it, that's not even a question. It's a matter of which Democrat you want to pick. And so um, I said, you know, let me be a little more open-minded. All of, all of the guys on the police department, all the guys and girls on the police department were all conservative. And they would really challenge me on the things that I thought about. And in conclusion, it came down to me realizing that I'm a lot more conservative. I don't support the anti-police rhetoric and all of the stuff that I felt that the Democrats were pushing at the time. Um, so I went to a Trump rally because he was running for office, obviously, and I, I didn't take him seriously. I thought it was joking. But when Ben Carson dropped out and endorsed him, I said, I need to I need to figure out, is this guy legit or not? Went to a rally, blew me away. I was shocked that Donald Trump uh, was saying all of the, all of the things that I believed in, all of the things that I felt were important to help our country become more successful and help police officers. And so I made a video about that experience. It went viral. And so I continued to make videos. They will all go viral. Colin Kaepernick video was one of the last videos that I made when I was a cop. It had 70 million views and an organization out of Anthem Phoenix. I mean, out of Anthem, Arizona, they offered me a one-year deal to be a spokesperson for, for their uh, conservative news organization. And initially I said, look, I'll just do it for a year and see where it go. I can always go back to be a cop. Uh, I did it for a year. I ended up meeting Candace Owens. We worked for Turning Point. We started Blexit. Uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. I just never went back. That's fantastic. And I've always been a, a really big fan of your content. You were actually one of the first people to post one of my TikToks on policing and on that subject matter and really jumpstarted people seeing and hearing what I was saying. So I thank you so much for that. Uh, and I think you're amazing. Now, I'm going to put on my leftist hat and we're <laughs> going to get into the debate. So, ladies and gentlemen, the debating and the back and forth starts now. Let's see if I can accurately represent your views. And if you're a leftist watching this right now and there's an argument that I missed or something that you've read that you know about, put it in the comments down below and hopefully we'll address it in another episode. Here we go. Okay, so, Brandon, you talk about wanting to become a police officer to truly help your community. You went on that ride along. You wanted to make change and you thought that maybe fighting crime or being there just as a resource for people who need you was a great thing. But do you think there is is a, a large amount of police officers who actually enter the job for maybe the opposite reasons, because there is a significant amount of power and influence that come along with being police officers and people really want to utilize that power in a way that they haven't been able to in the, their previous life? Well, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it's a large number of them. Um, I think there are some people that do that, just like with any profession. You know, you do have a level of power. You do have a level of authority that the average person just do not have. But by and large, the, most of the people that are on the police department understand. And there's a lot of risks there. Right. You're risking your life to have this level of authority. And it's not, you know, 
I would say the people that go into it for the wrong reasons, they normally get weeded out. And by and large, your experience is more than just power and authority. There's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of risk that you're taking as a police officer. There's a lot of turmoil that you go through. You know, you see the worst in society. You see things that people will never see. I mean, you go home brokenhearted half of the time. So I really do believe that for those who want power and authority, it's not really worth it at the end of the day with all of the other stuff that you have to go through. So generally speaking, it's a lot of good, uh, pure hearted people that get into the profession. You talk about, you know, people who are trying to utilize that power getting weeded out. How exactly does that happen? Because I, I've worked a lot with LAPD, particularly here in, in Watts in Los Angeles, and they've, they've given uh, examples of, you know, police officers who have used their position of power to, you know, assault young women or, or utilize force in a way that can go unchecked. We see oftentimes that there are cases of police brutality where police officers get acquitted. How is the system taking care of police officers who truly are just doing it for power. Right. I, I think that, you know, to be honest, it's difficult to fire a police officer, period. Um, in mm. some ways, it's great that that's the case because police officers are acting in good faith on behalf of the state, and sometimes there's mistakes that are made. Now, malicious police officers are hated by people on the police department. I think people get this confused. Mm. No one hates bad police officers more than good police officers or police officers in general. And here's another myth that I think people hold true in their heart that I think is just not true. There is a power dynamic between the boots on the ground police officers that patrol and the upper management. They are not friends. <laughs> the, 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 your mm. command staff, the chief, the deputy chiefs, they cannot wait to fire you for any reason that they can if you are going to destroy their reputation or get them in some type of a, a dilemma where they could be fired and lose their pension. So a lot of these bad police officers are tremendously hated um, by officers. And then also one mistake that you make that can damage the reputation of the department, they do not mind uh, getting rid of you. And so I think that, that those processes do occur. Now, generally speaking, as far as the, the elements that are in place to weed out officers that do things that are inappropriate or things like internal affairs. On my police department, internal affairs is a, is a place where they investigate police officers within the department. Um, a lot of those investigations are impartial and every citizen complaint gets reviewed. So if you go and you make a complaint against a police officer, it gets reviewed. The merits of that um, will be uh, investigated. And so those are ways that police departments go through and weed out these people who are consistently doing things that are wrong. There's internal internal checks and balances. So if you if you do something that's against policy, against mandates, you get written up. You get so many write ups, you get fired. And so all of those things are consistently mm. in place. People may not know that, but they're consistently in place. And as a former police officer, it is a fear that if you do anything wrong, they're going to they're going to fire you. So it's not that uh, I go and abuse my power and I just get, you know, let off the hook. That's, that doesn't happen or occur as frequently as people think. Okay. I, I mean, honestly, I'll be honest, I did not know that there was a process like that uh, within the police department. Uh, you said that nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And I think what is really sparking a lot of this debate when it comes to defunding the police, whether or not uh, there is a such thing as systemic racism in policing, is George Floyd. So right out the gate, we want to talk about George Floyd and, and, and discuss this. Uh, from my perspective, Derek Chauvin and all of the police officers that were a part of that situation are 
bad cops. We saw Derek Chauvin put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for, for more than eight minutes, and this resulted in his death. And we watched as other cops uh, looked and, and did nothing to, to stop this from happening. But in the wake of George Floyd, I did see a lot of police departments and, and police officers coming out and defending Derek Chauvin and his actions and saying that his response to George Floyd was rightful. So are those cops good cops? Is Derek Chauvin a good cop? Are the four other cops that were part of that situation who watched it happen, are those good cops to you, Brandon? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think there's a lot of nuance in these conversations. You know, I personally don't think that Derek Chauvin um, acted appropriately in that instance, you know, in, in his mm. the breadth of his career. I don't know if he's a good cop or not. I never worked with him. But what I saw there as a former police officer, as a field trainer, I trained officers. I taught at the academy that that's not appropriate in what he did. And the officers that, that were there, Chauvin had responsibility to uh, coach those officers. Some of those were rookie new officers that um, were, were relying on the leadership of Derek Chauvin, and he failed them. And so I don't really particularly think they were bad officers. I think they were caught in the middle of a bad situation that could have went one or two ways. Um, I do think George Floyd, some of his death was responsible for um, his ingestion of a, a lethal amount of fentanyl and methamphetamine. And I think the combination of both of those things together led to his death. And I think that the verdict was appropriate. You know, I think Chauvin should have went to jail. But officers who defend Chauvin, I mean, we have to look at the, the, the big picture of it. What are they defending? You know, I've never heard of an officer that defend him and say he's a good cop. I see some people defending the fact that the knee on the neck is an actual tactic that's taught and acceptable in the police department that Derek Chauvin worked in. It was a trained um, tactic that was used often. And there was there has never been a death associated with that in that particular police department. So I can see why officers come out and say, well, hold on, pump the brakes a minute. This guy's not just a radical, crazy uh, lunatic who just set out to kill this guy for no reason. He was deploying a tactic, and I think he went too far. And so I think that there's nuances to the conversation. We can we can say that the officer was inappropriate. We can say that all the officers there should be investigated and held accountable. And we should also be able to say that that George Floyd had a, a great responsibility in the reason why he ended up in the position that he's in. He didn't deserve it. But I think that resisting arrest mm. and buying stuff with fake money can result in you being under the knee of a, of a cop that will act inappropriately at that particular time. Yeah, let's talk about that that under the knee part, because I saw that video and I cannot believe that a police officer would ever put his knee or, or the weight of his body on the neck of an individual. Do you think that that's a tactic that police departments should rid themselves of? Should we really have police officers uh, being able to restrain people in that way? Well, I think that's, an, that's another great question. Um, they've been doing that on that on that particular department forever, and they never resulted in a fa in a fatality of anybody. So, uh, generally speaking, cops don't normally put their knee on a person's neck. You normally put the knee on the upper shoulder, which a lot of people think is the neck, and then you don't put mm -hmm. the, the the brunt force of your body weight on your knee while it's on the person's upper shoulder or neck, because as soon as they move, you can lose balance. Most of the time, what they do is put most of their weight on their heels or on a, on their on the balls of their feet and then slightly put the knee in that position to control the upper body the reason that they do it is not to hurt anybody kill anybody it's not a, a use of deadly force it's really to control the body if you control the head you control the body so when people are in distress um, I've been through this in many many cases where a person is on PCP and they want to bang their head on the ground and you want to restrain them in a way in which you have leverage so generally speaking, I think it's a great tactic. We used to teach the tactic. 
I would argue against putting the knee on the neck of a person. Um, the way we used to do it is putting it on the upper back. I think that is appropriate. It should be used in all cases. And if anybody disagree with that, I would like to see them go through the process of arresting a person who's violent on PCP and tell me a better tactic to use in a situation like that. Okay, interesting. Uh, you know, I think what really sparked a lot of the outrage surrounding George Floyd, and I'm sure you can attest to this and you saw it yourself, was the fact that he's black. Uh, and in this video, we saw something very, very similar uh, to what we've seen in a lot of videos of, of, of black people saying, you know, I'm claustrophobic, I can't breathe, and then having police officers subsequently take their, their lives in some way. And I think George Floyd uh, sparked, you know, a, a memory for people of people like Tamir Rice, of Eric Garner, of Michael Brown of Philando Castile. And, and when we look into some of the stats on this, I've done some reading, uh, black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men, apparently, to be killed by police during their lifetime. And in another study, black people who were fatally shot by police seem to be twice as likely as white people to be unarmed. Why do you think this is the case? And, and is this due to police bias? Because if I'm seeing this and I'm watching these videos on the news and I'm seeing, you know, over and over these black men getting shot and killed by police or suffocated by police, I'm going to assume that that's because the police are racist. And it seems like we have facts to support that. Great question. Um, I, well, what I'll say is that calm down, you know, <laughs> take a step back mm -hmm. and look at this from a broader perspective. When you talk about Tamir Rice and you talk about Fernando Castile, all of these individuals were in different jurisdictions with different police departments, with different training and the result and their actions were all very different. So I would argue that to make a good, fair argument, you have to go base by base, case by case and look at the situations um, in the individual instance that it happened. You know, when, when I when you look at the numbers of black men getting, you know, shot by police and I will have to verify the numbers that you said. However, when I looked up numbers from the Washington Post, they have an aggregate, uh, you know, database of all police shootings, all police involved deaths. And in their database, it shows that white men actually get shot twice as much unarmed. Um, versus black men and white people in general are shot twice as much as black people. However, I know people have the argument and you may have the argument that there's more white people. However, police don't patrol every single person in the country. They patrol only people that are involved in criminal behavior. Now, if you look at criminal behavior and you look at the actions of people and you break it up between white and black, black males commit a disproportionate amount of crime in this country. When you look at the homicide rate, over 50% of all homicides that are perpetuated are perpetuated by black men. Although black men, generally speaking, only make up 13% of the population. So it's a disproportionality of representation of black men in murders, also in violent crimes. Over 50% of all violent crimes are perpetuated by black men, black people in general, mostly black men. So when you look at the disproportionality of criminal behavior, and we can just just look at some of the inner cities, Chicago, Illinois. There is no such thing as a white Chicago, Illinois around the entire country. These gang violent, gang infested places where you see young people getting murdered by the tens um, in, in hundreds. If you look at it, you know, over the course of a year, you, you see this primarily in, in the inner city community. So when you look at the disproportionality of crime committed, you can understand why police officers are more apt to be involved in these situations and also in these communities. Now I will say, and I'm going to add with the, with the likelihood of getting shot unarmed for some reason, culturally 
and this is from my personal experience and also the things I see, it appears that black men are a lot more aggressive and they resist arrest at a higher rate. Here's why I say that. Look at any of the situations that you have uh, alluded to as far as pe people getting killed by police. It's either was noncompliance, either resisting arrest or a violent action towards police, which necessitated a deadly force response. And when you put it all together, it's really not as cut and dry as being disproportionately um, targeting black people. And I don't think that policing um, has much to do with race. I think it has much a lot to do with reaction to a person's actions. You know, I'm hearing what you're saying, especially with with the crime rate and things like that and comparing that to to the white population. But could it be that police officers are just arresting more people and, and you know, convicting more black people of these crimes because their communities are over police? We've got a tough sociologist who looked through different, you know, an affluent white community versus a low income black community and found that police presence was was exponentially higher in in these black communities and even there was a difference in in the culture of policing the police departments in these white communities uh were were much more service providers you know they showed up to calls but spent much of their time just working on local problems building relationships with the people in these communities and they were more quick and thorough and when they look at these low-income communities it seems as though the police officers were more aggressive they were more intimidating they were more focused on intervening in, in to violence and even in in some cases functioned as babysitters black people would have block parties or or get together with their families and police would station themselves outside of their outside of their neighborhood to simply watch these things happening it, it seems to me that police are more intent of, of finding black people and arresting them than they are in these more white affluent communities why is that so Great question. I think that, you know, there's a lot of reasons behind the way police act in different situations. And you, you have to, you know, what would be a good thing is do it right along so you can see this play out in, in uh, HD or maybe 4K at this point. But when you when you're in an affluent community, you know, what is the the likelihood of violence It's very low? Um, I patrol both. And I know that when you go to some of these affluent communities, people are more friendly with police. There's not a lot of violent crime going on. So you have the opportunity to proactively police. There's not a lot of calls for service. You have an opportunity to go up and knock on the door and know you know the neighbors. And when they call the police, it's not basically for a lot of violent things. When you go to some of these inner cities, it's violent. People are getting murdered every day. Mm -hmm. People are fighting the police, killing the police. I mean, it, it is it is out of control. And so there is truth and the fact that police are patrolling these inner cities at a higher rate, but it is because there's a necessity to patrol because police are really responsive. If you call the police, that's when most of the time they show up. If there's crime being committed in a place, that's where they are going to be located. They're not going to waste their time, you know, in an affluent community where people aren't really committing crimes. And the, and the craziest call you get at two o'clock in the morning is somebody saying somebody stole the, uh, uh, the water hose. I mean, in these inner cities like Chicago, you know, and Watts and all that, you're getting calls of mass shootings, people getting killed, gang violence, rapes. And so police have to go where the crime is being committed. And unfortunately, and I can acquiesce to this point that you made, unfortunately, if you are patrolling the area more often, you're going to catch more people. And a lot of that is not based on race. It's really based on um, the actions of people who live in these inner city communities, these fallen communities where morals are low and people are hustling, using drugs, selling drugs, gang involved in gang violence. This occurs 
in trailer homes too, you know, where you see more mm. white people. It's 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 kind of a a wealth versus poverty thing. It's a moral character and a person that's raised right versus people who are not raised to respect authority. So you do see a disproportionality. I want to bring up this one point before we go to the next one is that I want people to understand too is that when a police officer joins or, or goes out for a shift, they don't just randomly pick where they patrol. You have certain precincts. So you have a precinct that may be on the north side where it's affluent. They only patrol that particular area. They don't have the ability to go down to the south side where black people are at or where minority communities are at. So it's not really positioned like people think. The people who work in these inner cities, they only work in the inner cities. So all of their traffic stops, all of the calls for service that they go to are going to be concentrated in this inner city. So it's not a full police department approach to say everybody go to the south side. It's only heavily worked in that particular precinct. And they typically spread officers throughout the city equally. Um, it's just that some parts of the city are a lot more violent. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, it does. It does speak to maybe we should look at police officers more on a case to case basis and then just simply looking over all the stats of the United States and drawing our conclusions there. I, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier and, and about these lower income communities being more violent. A lot of times I hear conservatives talk about this. And to me, it sounds like they are saying that black people, Hispanic people, you know, the people of color that live in these neighborhoods are more violent, like it's somehow in, inherent to them. And, that, and that's why we don't see it. And the white populations, you made the distinction between, you know, it not being that and actually being attached to socioeconomic status. Can you elaborate on that? Because I feel like that's not something that I'm hearing from conservatives. I'm truly hearing them say that black people are more violent. That's why police respond this way and that we should simply expect these things to happen. Yeah, great point. I think that there is a nuance to this articulation of this particular conversation is poverty and people who are not raised properly, people who are in predicaments of, in some cases, single parent homes and and their actions, culture, create an environment of violence that can. It doesn't matter the, the color of your skin. It matters what cultural situation you find yourself in, because there are Hispanic communities that are that have a cultural degradation as well and they are heavily policed they have a lot of crime and violence that occurred there and the same thing happens in these in these poor black communities and the same thing happens in poor white communities i w i patrolled in tucson on the west side of tucson where primarily it was white and hispanic where did we spend most of our time the poor white areas where they were stabbing and mm -hmm. shooting each other and and short and snorting coke and, and doing meth and all kind of other stuff so it's not really a race thing um, I know that it, unfortunately, and this is something that Thomas Sowell says, you know, just because there's disparity doesn't mean there's discrimination or just because there's a disproportionality don't mean it is racism. Unfortunately, with the single parent homes and some of the things that have happened in the black culture, it has created these communities. This is not the overall overarching theme of black people, because if you look at it, you say, well, most black people are not committing crimes. You look at the murder rate in the country, about 7,000 people are murdered. There's 40 million black people in the country. So most black people are not murderers and thugs, but it's a concentration mm -hmm. of certain people in these communities that we see a lot of violence, which necessitate a lot of police uh, response. And a lot of it, I believe, has to do with culture and not necessarily um, has to do with the color of your skin. And, and I'm not saying this because I read it in a book. I used to live in the inner cities of Fort Worth. I lived in Stop Six, I lived in Eastwood, um, and 
it was a lot more violent and it was a lot of more a lot more culturally violent there was no gangs when me and my when we lived in Crowley and we lived in white settlement in in Fort Worth and you go down near Dunbar where we lived stop 6 Eastwood Polly it was a lot of gangs and so there is a difference in these communities and there's a true violence that occurs and my hope is that we can see some of these things change and therefore res- police response will change. Okay. Okay. So I hear, I hear what you're saying, but I kind of want to push back and say that the reason that we have these sort of violent communities, the lack of family is actually because of white supremacy and the white man and this legacy that they created in America. If we look at the times of slavery, you know, black people had their families separated from each other. That wasn't a, a culture that was really fed into and bred by these, these slaveholders. And even if we look at police, isn't that really born out of slavery? You had black men trying to escape this white supremacist nation where they were being used for labor and subsequently they created slave catchers which sounds really similar to what police do right now hunting down black people arresting them convicting them and then jailing them again which if if you look back historically i'm thinking that really policing comes from from slave catchers so hasn't really white supremacy and just whiteness and white privilege created these these standards that that black people are living by in these low-income communities well i disagree um a lot with, mm-hmm. with that statement you know when we think about the condition of black people today after the 60s you know 60s into now black people are very different in 30s to the 60s i mean black people were very affluent black people did a you know owned a lot of property and real estate and we had people mm-hmm. like uh booker t washington and and a lot of black leaders who really accelerated black success in this country we've seen black people progress more than anybody in the history of this country but in in the 30s in the 40s and 50s. And then we saw a degradation of the black community in the 60s, which I would argue that it had nothing to do with slavery, obviously, because slavery preceded all of that. And so I think it's it's mm-hmm. it's maybe a uh, uneducated excuse to talk about the way police are occurring today and skip over all of these other factors. You know, black people haven't always been this way. Uh, Crips and Bloods have not always existed. Uh, Young men walking around with their pants sagging has not always existed. In the 30s and 40s and 50s, black people really had a stable family and they loved God and they were involved in the church a lot more than they are today. You know, I think it was 25 percent of children were born out of wedlock in the 30s. Now we look at it today, you know, it's it's 75 percent. I don't think slavery had anything to do with that. What I think it has had to do with is culture. Who are our idols? Who are we looking up to today in the black community versus the way we used to be? So I would argue to take a step back and not try not to look at it from a racial lens. Try to look at it from a historical lens. And I think it'll give you a better perspective on how we got to this point and how we're going to fix this point. And if you look at race exclusively, we're never going to get anywhere. I mean, uh, you look at Black Wall Street, you look at the the Harlem Renaissance, you look at uh, Madam C.J. Walker, who was the richest woman in American history. She was the first millionaire. Um, If you account for inflation, she would have been a billionaire in the early 1900s. So there is clear success of black people. And I think the degradation has come through culture and it can be reversed. And I think we need to look at it that way and we'll we'll have a better result.
Okay, fair enough. So let's take race out of this discussion then and, and circle back to the police brutality. Now, let's let's take race out of it and say this is not just a, a person of color problem. This is not just a black problem. Is police brutality a problem? And do you think it's pervasive enough that we need to start having discussions as a, as a country about what to do about police, uh, you know, utilizing their power in the wrong way? Well, great question. I think that police brutality is very rare, although I think it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime a police officer, you know, damaged their reputation and disrespect the badge and does, does not uphold their oath is a problem. I think any police officer who are, who's responsible for brutalizing other people should not be a police officer anymore. It's, very, it's really that clear. The only problem is that where do we draw the line and define what's police brutality and what's not? The problem that we're, we're getting into is a justifiable use of force that is unpleasant to the eye sometimes is perceived as police brutality versus real illegal uses of force that's already against the law in virtually every state in the in the union it's already against department policies let me give you an example when you put your knee on somebody's neck for 10 minutes until they die like like uh chauvin did to george floyd that's already against the policy and already against the law and he went to jail over it and so and when you look at uh, other instances where you see someone like uh, Tamir Rice or you see Michael Brown, um, those are justified uses of deadly force against a person who is uh, presenting himself as a deadly threat. And Tamir Rice's case, although he was a young man, people, most people that I talked to have never watched the video. He literally pulled out mm. a replica gun on the police officers and they shot him one time, which is a use of deadly force. And they had an articulable reason to fear that their life was in serious uh, or in fear of serious injury or bodily uh, or serious bodily injury or death. And so when mm-hmm. you look at Michael Brown, he charged at a police officer after violently attacking a police officer, trying to take his gun. The officer used deadly force. And let me explain deadly force just for a minute for people to be able to recognize this a little better is that there's a okay. very difference between murder and use utilizing deadly force. When you utilize deadly force, it does not necessarily mean a person dies. Jacob Blake was shot seven times and he didn't die. Now he's in, he's, he's paralyzed, but he did not die. So, your death is not the end result and the factor in which you are judged on as a police officer. It's the fact of did you justifiably use deadly force? And if you justifiably use deadly force and the outcome is death, it was justified. If you justifiably mm-hmm. lose, use deadly force and the outcome was not death, then it's still a justified use of force. Now, if you do the wrong thing and the outcome is not death, you still are responsible for and it, uh, 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 a poor use of deadly force and you will be uh, held accountable. And the same thing is if you don't use deadly force properly and you kill somebody, you're going to be charged with murder. Chauvin, uh, the officer that, that killed Laquan McDonald, um, it, it, many of these officers that are already have been prosecuted over these things. So I think that delineating uh, the truth um, from fiction or from you know, misinformation is important to have this conversation. I, you know, I, yeah, I, so I hear you there, and I actually agree that if, if somebody is posing a deadly threat to you, you have to respond, you have to defend yourself, and, and a lot of times, police officers are saving people by doing so, but a through line in these videos, to me, seems to be a lack of training. We talk about Tamir Rice, you know, he may have been holding a replica gun, replica gun but did he have to die? Uh, could could the police officer have shot him maybe in the leg or in the hand? We look at Micaiah Bryant, who had a knife uh, and was about to go for a girl's neck, so the police officer was saving a life, but did he have to shoot her that many times? Uh, you know, I feel like police officers could be better trained to make the 
these, even though they are split second decisions, make these split second decisions. And, you know, I read an article today out of insider.com. The, the headline here is that the average U.S. police department requires fewer hours of training than what it takes to become a barber or a plumber in the United States. Aren't you thinking that maybe we should train these officers more and train them differently to respond to these situations so they don't result in death? Well, I think you I think that's a great question. Um, but there's some things I think you're missing here in, in, in a few of these areas. I do agree with you, and I think that most people would not would not disagree with this, that police officers do need more training. I was a police officer, mm-hmm. and I was a trainer of police officers, and we do not have the funding to have more uh, quality training, meaning use of force training. Let me just give you an example. Most police officers don't experience use of force situations on a day-to-day basis, although people may think so. I would argue that 90% or 95% of police officers never have to discharge their firearm during their duties as a police officer. Our police chief, well, 30 years. He worked in the Tucson Police Department for 30 years. He never pulled his gun. I was on a SWAT team. I was. I worked in the most dangerous city per capita in the state of Arizona. I've never had to shoot anybody. So it's very rare that officers actually get into a real life and death situation. So most officers are not equipped and trained enough. They don't get enough exposure. And what we did on our department is that we had use on a force on force training, which means we had a house that was that had it's very complicated. We had a house that had these bulletproof walls and we would go through and train actually shooting our gun and identifying threats or non threats. And also we would use what we call simunition rounds, which those are like they're pretty much like paintball guns. And we shoot each other in these situations where um, we are trying to figure out use of force. Uh, should we shoot or not shoot force on force combat? Things like that. Now, our department had the finances to do it, but most don't. And that is a big problem. And I think that we can agree that we need to fund police officers more to help them be qualified in training. Now, the second point is the amount of hours per training is a big misconception. A barber is not doing anything near what police officers are doing while they are in training. And many people probably should go to a police academy and, and at least do a ride along or something so you can see what the police training is. We go for 10 hours, 12 hours a day, every single day to learn about the law, learn about use of force, learn about mental health. We learn how to shoot. We learn how to drive. We learn all of those things in basic training, but there's a lot more involved in it. And then let me just go through the process real quick. When you sign up for a barber, you go to college and you get your barber license. When you sign up as a police officer, you have to fill out a 40 page document of all of your background. Everybody you ever talked to, everybody you lived around, they do a, a psychological evaluation to do a polygraph test. Um, you have to go through a physical evaluation. I mean, you have to do all of these different things. It takes about six months for them to evaluate your background and for them to at least give you an opportunity to apply way more intense than any other job that you previously mentioned. Then once you go through the Academy, you, you study and learn the things that I just spoke about uh, for about 17 weeks uh, in, in Texas. They do six months of that training. That's basic training. Then from basic training, you go to post basic training, which is another eight weeks of training and learning the systems within that particular department and municipality. After you finish that, you go through more training and they don't they don't talk about this when when they give that statistic. You go through what we call field training, which means that you go out on patrol as a certified police officer and you are trained by, for 22 more weeks by a, a certified police officer, which I was. You go through three phases. 
while you're in those phases, you have to learn about being a police officer. You have to show uh, competency. You're judged by other police officers. You have to take uh, uh, tests and you have to pass our, our department. You have to pass with a 90 or better. If you did not pass the test, you do not progress in the phase. You get fired. And then once you finish field training, you're out on your own as a police officer and you are on probation for 180 days. Um, so if you if you go out and you do something illegitimate, they can fire you for any reason. And, and so when you look at all of the, the pre-qualifications, the training, you are extensively more involved than somebody that's a barber or hairstylist or anything like that. And also, once you're done with your training, you are forever in the process of learning and exploring things because you cannot replicate life and death situations in a training facility. You cannot replicate what it looks like when a person has been decapitated from being in a serious car accident. You cannot replicate that. You cannot replicate what it's like to get a person who's been dead for, for, for a month or for three weeks and put them in the body bag, the smell, and all of those things that you deal with. Domestic violence, doing investigations, high-speed chases. You cannot simulate that. So those are experiences mm -hmm. that you get over the course of 20 years, a 20-year period. So if you would ask me, cops are a lot more equipped and trained, far more than anybody else that you previously mentioned. Okay, fair enough. So there's more training than it seems like this article this article goes through, although I think we do agree that maybe there's more specific training that police officers can go through. Now, uh, we're going to wrap things up here and, and just lastly talk about police reform. It seems like the common ground that we found is, yes, police brutality does happen. You think it's rare. Maybe I disagree. I don't know that it's rare with all the videos that I see and all the, all what media shows me and, and uh, these, these horrific videos, but we also seem to agree that maybe some more specific training could be used. But I think where we disagree, you mentioned adding more uh, investment into police officers and giving them more resources. I, you know, follow Black Lives Matter. They put out this this Breathe Act where they stipulate that what we should do is actually take money away from police departments, make them smaller, maybe make them smaller, but better trained. But again, make them smaller, take the money from the police departments and funnel that money back into the community with social work, helping people create businesses, putting it into inner city schools. Because I think that if we do that and we actually invest in the communities in the way that we should, it's going to create a climate where people do not want to commit crimes anymore and you won't need police. And maybe eventually we can make it to a community that is sort of utopic, where the community is policing itself and we don't even need police departments in the future. But it doesn't start until we you know, take the resources away from these police officers and put them back into the communities. Until then, we will just have this endless cycle of low-income communities with high crime and these really oppressive and aggressive police forces. What what seems to be wrong with what I just said? Well, I'll tell you what, it, what you said sounds really sweet and beautiful in a fantasy world. But in real life, we've already seen these things play out. You know, in California and many places across the country, they defunded the police, meaning they try to reallocate funds. And some of them just dissolved uh, police departments. And we've seen crime go out of the roof because funding is not the only allocation that needs to um, that you need in order to change something. Right. Police um, allocation of funds or giving more funds to police have a tangible result, meaning that if you want officers to be trained better in just say 
um, use utilization of handguns or you want them to be trained better in the way they de-escalate. You have to fund that to get the training. And there's numbers that back up how much it may cost per officer. And so if you want those things to be to occur, there's a tangible financial um, you know, strategy to that. When you talk about taking money from police officers and then throwing it into the community to do what? To build a uh, recreation center? Well, if you are not changing the lives of the people that go to the recreation center, it's just going to be a bummy recreation center down the road. So in the, in the grand scheme of things, um, I think that we need to focus on one instance at a time and not cross pollinate. Mm -hmm. If you want police officers to be better trained, we have to pay for their training. If you want them to be at a call when you, you know, respond appropriately, we need to have enough of them in order to respond appropriately. If you want them to stay and you want them to be retained and you don't have attrition like we see all around the country, which means police officers are leaving the police department and there's not enough cops to answer these calls for service, we need to pay them and we need to support them in a more meaningful way. But I do think that we can utilize resources to help the community as well. I just believe it's not as simple as taking it from the police and directly giving it over here. I think we need to make sure the police are secured and use other ways to help out in these communities. But a lot of the responsibility is rhetoric and also the the raising of children, things that the government cannot control. I would argue that more of the burden in these communities to change what we see is on the church. It's on the community. It's on the leaders. It's on the people. Because I don't care how much money you throw at a person, if if fathers are not present, strong male leadership is not present, we are going to see a fallout. If people don't have hope, and hope cannot be given to you with money, hope is given to you by God. And if people are not going to church, they're not getting fed the, 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 the gospel, in my opinion, then they are going to be hopeless and you can't restore that through government assistance. So there's a, there's a plethora of things that we can do to make our communities better. But in all in all, we should work together. We should not be divisive. The police officers have to work with the community. If you ask most black people in this country and polls have been done, um, do you want more police? Do you think we should defund the police? And most of the people that live in these places are saying no. Because they see the crime that's committed. They see um, the cost of service. They see the drug dealers on the corner creating zombies in the community. And they want it to end. And they know it's going to take a brave police officer, which in many cases are, are black. You look at Atlanta, 50% of the police department is black. Look at Philly. A lot of these black communities are patrolled by a lot of black officers as well. So we need a community approach. And that community does not alienate other people or alienate particular groups. We should work together and we'll see things change in our communities. Awesome. I think I think honestly, you gave a very, very well-rounded approach to things that we can do. I want to wrap this up with one last question. So you're not a supporter of this Breathe Act. You're not a supporter of what what BLM thinks is the future of policing. If you could snap your finger and tomorrow reform police in any way, shape or form. And you sort of answered in the previous question. Is there anything that right now you would do to change the, the police force in America? I think the biggest thing you can do is allow police officers to be better, more equipped in training and also boost morale. That's 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 the, the very crux of law enforcement. If you if police officers have poor morale, they tend to leave the police department. They tend to not be proactive in policing. 
Um, and, and it all crumbles. It all falls apart. They're not going to be as enthusiastic. They're not going to be as emboldened to put their life on the line to save people. And the community will go to crap. And then when they do try and they're not well equipped, they have not had proper training. They have not had proper exposure to use of force situations. They are going to make mistakes. And I think that we should rally around our law enforcement officers. We should not demonize them. We should rally around them. We should get rid of the bad ones. And I think that we will see a better relationship between policing and the community. And it's not something I read in the book. It's something I know because I was a police officer. All right. Let me get these devilers off my head now. Brandon, that was amazing. Uh, I think that's where we're going to wrap our our debate on this subject matter. I love it. We ended on a high note. And uh, uh, yeah, so guys, That was Devil's Advocate. That was our first time doing that. Uh, Brandon, what a valiant person being the guinea pig for this segment. I I really appreciate you you being on. Yeah, you know, did I did I give you a run for it? Did I did did I accurately represent you know some of the stuff you're hearing? You did an excellent job, and hats off to you for being able to be to to ask these tough questions. And I think that it's important because I know that we go down a path of of sometime being um, tribal where, you know, my side against this side, Mm -hmm. but like, I think people really have these genuine questions and they may be uninformed. And and, and instead Mm -hmm. of me saying, you're stupid, you're an idiot, you know, why you why you don't know this stuff it's like no let me educate you because you may not have been exposed to the things that i've been exposed to you know at face value the number of training hours may make sense to you but when you think of the quality of training in those training hours is absolutely night and day and so i think it's important for us to have these conversations and when someone is genuinely asking these questions to give them a genuine loving uh response in good faith. And I think that that will make all the difference. I completely agree. And I, again, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Guys, this is a really important subject matter for me. As you guys know, I've started to work a lot with police officers outside of my work here at PragerU in LAPD and Watts. So when I said that as a leftist, I truly meant that I do work with them. And I've been going on ride-alongs multiple times a week. And I went into it as somebody who was, you know, I used to be anti-police. I got the black power fist on my arm and hated police. And then I went to, you know, backing the blue, supporting police officers. And even then, with my support for them had no idea the extent to which their their job was truly critical to communities. They are not just police officers. They are they are teachers. They are parents in a lot of ways. They are social workers. They are helping people get their lives together. And truly, you have to build relationships with these communities before you can police them. And it's not like police officers are just sitting on the outside and responding as they need to. They live in these communities and they are with these people all the time. So hopefully this gave you a nuanced take of the policing debate, both for the left, the centrist and the people on the political right if there's anything that i left out if there's anything that brandon left out that you wish we had discussed or a fact that you wish we had thrown in there put it down below and if there's something that you learned put that in the comments down below as well because i feel like i did a lot of learning here maybe brandon learned some leftist talking points although i think he's pretty well versed in those <laughs> i, I might have got you a little bit it was good. the slave catcher one <laughs> 
Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much for watching. Brandon, how can people find you, support the work that you're doing, and listen to you outside of this? Yeah, so the Officer Tatum, because I was a police officer, so theofficertatum.com. You can find everything I do. I have a podcast, a YouTube channel. I also have an online news network, and I also have videos with, with PragerU. So you can check out some of my videos with PragerU. Um, that's the way you can find me, and, and I really appreciate you having me on here. This was such a great experience. I'm so proud of you, um, and I think you did a really good job doing the leftist thing. I, for a minute there, I was like, wait a minute, hey, are you, are you, this is how you really feel? <laughs> but I thought it was great, and I think you're such a great and genuine person, and, and I could not be uh, more excited and honored to be on uh, someone's podcast. So thank you, Amala. I really awesome. appreciate awesome. it. I feel the same way about you. Thank you so much for being the first guest on Unapologetic Live. Guys, remember to show Brandon some love. Please like, subscribe, turn on the notification bell to be notified every single day when we go live. That is at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be coming at you with more content like this. Let me know also down below, are there other conservative commentators or experts that you want to bring on to play uh, this game with me? And I will be devil's advocate again, try my best to represent the left, and we will have the debates that people aren't having. So comment down below and let me know. And I will see you guys tomorrow for a Friday's show. Bye, guys.